This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. What does the word geography actually mean? It translates literally as earth writing, and that's what geographers do, tell stories about places, people and environments. But over 70% of the earth's surface is water. So what does that mean for the stories we tell? I'm Laura, and in this podcast we're out to sea with Dr Kimberly Peters from the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Liverpool. We discuss the historic and contemporary importance of oceans to global development and global governance. Um, so Kim, it's been suggested that human geography so far has been landlocked. Um, why do you think oceans and seas may have been neglected by geographers? The word geography translates most readily as earth writing. That's what it means, to write about the earth. And I think geographers have taken that meaning of, of the word geography very, very seriously. Um, they've written about the earth or the ground or the soil as opposed to writing about um, the seas and oceans. So I think that's one of the reasons that geography has been incredibly landlocked. But there's other reasons as well. Um, For example, human geographers, we're very interested in human life. We're interested in what people do and their relations with space and place. But where do most of us live? We live with our feet firmly on dry land. So we focus mainly on the land rather than looking out to sea. Physical geographers, for example it's very difficult for them to study the seas and oceans, particularly the deep seas and oceans, because of access and also the cost of doing research there. So physical geographers have tended to stay quite quite close to the shore, close to the coast. And all of that together has meant that geography as a discipline has been, has been quite landlocked and we haven't tended to look out to sea. But this is something that I think has, has bothered me quite a lot as a geographer, because if we think about that word earth writing um, and writing about our earth, well, 70% of the surface of our earth it's water, it's seas and oceans. So really we should, be, we should be writing about that. So is it more than just the sea itself that you're interested in then? Would you say it's about the, you know, what the sea represents, the movement of goods, economic capital, ideas that's kind of moved by the sea? Is, mm. is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been very interested um, in my previous work in thinking about um, the movement of ideas across the ocean. Um, I've also been interested in the use, different uses of the ocean by different people. Um, So I've done some earlier work that's based on pirate radio. Um, So today it's very difficult to imagine that we would live in a world um, where there isn't choice in what we listen to on the radio. We turn on the radio, we put on our computer, we put on our television, there's all these different channels. That didn't used to be the case. Um, And so in the 1960s there were people out on the ocean using that particular space, which is outside of the control of of a given nation like the UK. And they use that space to broadcast. So I was very interested in the movement of ideas through the air, if you like, at sea. So that's one thing that I've been interested in. Um, My recent work is very much interested in the movement of goods. It's interested in sort of economic um, movements and sort of how things make their way around the world. Um, So that's been the kind of thing that I've been interested in as well. But what underscores both of those things is an interest in how we regulate or how we control or how we look after the sea, because it's not like the land. So the land is controlled by, you know, governments who they set their rules and their agendas um, and there's all these little nation-state pockets. But the sea isn't like that. Um, It's a much bigger space and it's internationally looked after. 
Um, and that causes some particular problems for, for sort of, yeah, some particular problems for, for security, for um, resources, for waste management, all of those kinds of things at sea. Oceans and space have always played a role in globalisation processes, but in the 21st century, how do you think this role is changing? Things have always moved at sea. Um, there is a, a really fantastic um, book by Miles Ogborn, who is a geographer at Queen Mary University, and he shows how globalisation processes, particularly at sea, have been going on for many, many, many centuries. So when we think about globalisation and the role of the sea in that, it, it's not something that's new, but it has changed in the 21st century, and it's changed with a number of different technologies. The most important technology has probably been the container. And what that's meant we can do is before we used to have to pack everything on a ship individually and then we'd move it around the world, it would take quite a long time. We call that kind of slow movement. And now we can put everything in a box. All of those boxes are the same size. We can stack lots and lots and lots of them on a ship. It goes around the world. And all of a sudden we can move things on bulk and we can move them more quickly than we've ever been able to do before. And that has meant the world has opened up in a new way that was previously impossible. So things have always moved at sea. They just haven't moved with the, with the same amount of speed um, and with the same level of connection that's now possible. So that's the key difference, I think. How has then kind of the legal and political governance of oceans changed as a, as a result of, how you say, the speeding up of, of movement? Mm. For a long time, there's been lots of different forms of governance at sea. Um, as long as people have been moving at sea, different people have tried to control or regulate the seas. That's not something that is new. In the middle of the 20th century, when we started having this, this movement towards containerization and there's more traffic at sea and everything's getting busier, at the same time, that's when ocean governance cranked up a notch. So what we had is before 1958, there wasn't actually a law of the sea. So there were lots and lots of different documents that tried to look after try to look after things at sea. So there's something called SOLAS, the Safety of Life at Sea Convention. And that came out in 1914 after the Titanic disaster. And the point of that was, was all of a sudden they said, if these ships are going around the ocean, we need to make sure they've got enough, they've got enough lifeboats and also that there are regular radio watches. So there's always been this kind of regulation. But in 1958, um, the United Nations, as an international body, all got together and said, do you know what, we need a law of the sea. So that's what's changed. All of a sudden, we, we have this document that consolidated everything together, said this is how we're going to look after this global commons, our oceans, with this document. And that document contains lots of different parts to it. Um, it contains things such as um, marine pollution regulations, maritime labour conventions to look after the people who are using the oceans, um, collision regulations, safety of life at sea conventions, those kinds of things. But I think what's remarkable is, um, you know, the, an actual guiding document, you know, the United Nations Law of the Sea, you know, we, we only had that in 1958. And I guess seas and oceans as well represent kind of very fluid borders as well and kind mm. of the kind of interesting spaces in between different nations. So yeah. how does that... How does that governance play out then between different nation states? So the United Nations are, are the body that looks after, um, if we like, the deep sea, so the international sea. So when we look at a map, a world map, often the ocean just looks like this big blue space. We don't mark borders on it, but there are borders and boundaries at sea. So coastal nations, um, up to 12 miles from their shore, that is their territory. Beyond that 12 miles, you're into what we call the deep sea, which is 
governed by the United Nations and all the countries that are part of the United Nations. So in terms of ocean governance, this is quite tricky because what that means is that all the different nations that are signatories to the United Nations have a responsibility. They call it a stewardship over that deep sea space. But the reality is, um, while they do a, a fantastic job, um, it's often, it's, you know, the water's a bit murky. If something happens at sea, whose navy goes and looks after it or who's, who goes and sees to that particular issue? And often when there are issues at sea, people do come together, nations do come together, and we've seen that with the example of, of migration across the Mediterranean um, from countries like Syria. We, we've seen nations come together in response to these things. But it is trickier because it means nations have to come together. Also, what's very interesting is the United Nations law of the sea. Um, not all countries have ratified the law of the sea. Um, most interestingly, the United States is not a signatory of the law of the sea. Um, so, again, how effective that governance of, of the oceans is, is, is tricky um, when not all, all nations are signed up to it. So, up to 12 nautical miles, it's just like your nation state. Beyond that, it's the deep sea. There's a little thing in between called your extended economic zone. So coastal nations can claim up to 200 nautical miles if they want to, say, for example, mine for resources or, or other things as well. I guess historically there's always been a degree of danger associated with journeys that take place in the seas, but do you think this is changing then and we're kind of dealing with new challenges associated mm. with migration and asylum? It's a really, really... Um, pivotal issue at the moment but I think you also hit the nail on the head that this is nothing new um, we've seen waves of, of migration across the oceans um, that's often f that has been forced um, in the past um, so this is is another if you like iteration of that um, it's very specific because of geopolitically what's what's going on um, I think you know there's there's been lots of has been written about um about responses to this, governance responses to um, these journeys that are being made often in boats that are not suitable. Um, and I think that's probably one of the worst things is that very, very people who are incredibly vulnerable are then put into more vulnerable positions by having to make these kinds of journeys. And we've seen all kinds of governance responses. Some of them are, are based on, on rescuing people who are at sea you know, and again, that's a cross-collaboration between different nations where they've been able to go and rescue people who have then ended up in treacherous situations. Um, but we've also seen other issues. When we, when we look over to Australia, for example, um, they've tried to prevent people making these journeys in the first place. They've had a very, very strong regime of what they call, or what my colleague at Durham University, uh, Dr Kate Coddington, calls sort of pushback strategies where... The, the Navy will go out into the ocean, they will approach these boats and they'll say, you cannot come near our territory, you turn around and you go back. So we've seen different kinds of strategies. We've seen independent bodies or charitable bodies also involved trying to help with this issue. It's, it's not new, and I don't know what the answer is. The answer, as is often the case, um, actually is an answer that is needed on land. So um, if you can follow me through here... Um, another really interesting thing that we've seen very recently is this sort of resurgence of piracy. Piracy, again, has always been an issue in our oceans. In about 2008, there was a real spate of piracy um, on the East African coast um, of Somalia. So ships going um, through the Suez Canal became targets for, for piracy. And different people have argued that the way in which we solve that 
is is basically by improving the conditions on land so people don't have to don't have to then be involved in in different um, don't have to be involved in piracy and I think ultimately the issues that we've got with migration at the moment is about you know people are in war-torn countries and how can we how can we help and I think while I said at the beginning um, geography has been a landlocked discipline I'm not advocating that geographers should only be studying the seas that we need to leave the land behind because the two are constantly connected together um, so what we need to do is, is think about those connections because what happens at sea is often related to what happens on land. You've mentioned a few different types of vessels there and different ships, so as well as mm. the geographies of the sea. Yeah. I guess so we're talking about the geographies of ships here because, as you said, with migration, the issue is a lot of these ships are quite unsafe. Mm. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got kind of all these geographies around like super rich people in yachts. And you've also mentioned, you know, the container ships as well earlier. Yeah. So are you interested in kind of the study of ships as well as mm. much as the sea and kind of the things that are moved on the seas? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you raise a really, really good point because geographers, we think about space and place across a number of scales. So, so far I've been talking about the ocean as a, as a space we can study. So we can study the space of the land, we can study the space of the sea. But on a smaller scale, um, a ship is also a, is a place. Um, if, if, you know, geographers such as Tim Creswell have described um, place as space which is made meaningful. So a ship is a, is a sort of space that's made through the activities that happen there. Um, and I'm really interested in different types of ships and, and, and sort of what, what goes on on them. And there are different types of vessels out there and they serve different purposes. Um, and I think when we start to look at that, we see all the different uses of the sea and the different competing uses of the sea. So you mentioned container vessels. So there are many, many thousands of container vessels moving around the world. There's also bulk carriers moving really essential things to our lives like oil, gas, grain, textiles, that kind of thing. You also mentioned there's, there's military vessels that are patrolling or looking after our seas and oceans. One thing that we haven't mentioned is fishing vessels, which is you know, hugely, hugely contentious. And, and we see lots of kind of fights over space in terms of fisheries. Um, so you know, some fishers saying, well, I want, I want to fish in this space, and others saying, yeah, but that's also my space and we see that a lot in the North Sea because everyone's competing over over the same I use this word carefully the same ground and also there's research vessels um, so the new research vessel Sir David Attenborough is being built uh, in Birkenhead which is near Liverpool where I'm from so that's been really interesting so lots of different vessels out there doing different things have you gone to see that ship being built or do you have that kind of access or is it just kind of, um, you know that it's in the area? Because I just wondered how that might impact kind of, especially something somewhere like Liverpool that's got such a maritime history, how yeah. that kind of, that new ship building might be linked into kind of place making. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So Britain has always, you know, historically um, has had a big ship building industry. Um, and um, Liverpool, where I'm from, was, is the home to the White Star Line or Cunard, which is a famous line, it's a famous um, cruise liner company, famously built ships like the Mauritania and the Titanic, um, which I've mentioned um, already. Um, but yeah, and I think what's really interesting in Liverpool is that it's a city that's built on its maritime history. It's built very much on the whole city is shaped by the money that was made from maritime industry. Um, the slave trade, for example, so it's lots of 1700s, 1800s buildings have been built, have been built from the profits of the slave trade. Um, but now Liverpool is very much a tourist destination, so we've turned that that kind of 
maritime um, history in, into heritage. Um, but Birkenhead, which is actually directly opposite Liverpool on the other side of the River Mersey, is still very much a working shipyard. I just wondered if you'd encountered immobility in your research, so kind of those situations where oceanic and sea environments kind of affect the mobility of things. I mentioned a geographer called Tim Creswell earlier who's written a lot about mobility, and he always says that always with mobility is, is immobility. There's always examples where things can't move. Um, so there's a couple of examples of this. Firstly, um, at sea, things can stop moving, so to speak, um, because of environmental hazards. So we've seen these smooth flows of things around the world from A to B can stop because, for example, a ship crashes um, because of a navigational hazard like a sandbank or something like that. And that often ends up with really, really awful environmental disasters, which again, in terms of the governance of the sea, means that lots of different nations have to come together to try and, and solve those, those problems once something like an oil spill occurs. Because, of course, oil moves in the sea and then it, it doesn't respect boundaries. It can move absolutely anywhere. Um, so, yeah, we can see that, that things can stop moving at sea because of navigational hazards. The second thing is economic. Um, I've written a little bit about this recently. Um, there is a, a shipping line around the world, and actually it, it went bust. It ran out of money. Um, and when it ran out of money, um, there were lots of, it had lots of ships, and they were all out in the sea. And those ships were approaching ports, and ports said, you can't come into port because you know, your company has gone bust and we know you won't be able to pay your, your, your port fee. So those ships had to then stay out, out and offshore. So what we saw is the sort of stopping of mobility. And, and last year in, in 2016, there were actually all of these boats just stopped, just, just static in the ocean, just waiting for the company to tell them what to do. So I think it alerts us to the fact that all of these things that are happening, all this mobility that's happening around the world, is always subject to a set of physical processes which can threaten it, a, a set of, of, of social, political, economic processes that might stop it as well. So you're absolutely right. Mobility, you know, it's not just the sea is moving all around us. Of course it is. But also those movements can be subject to, to sort of stillness and to stopping as well. For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools for the latest updates. This recording was supported by the Global Learning Programme. For more resources to encourage your pupils' understanding of global issues and development, visit www.glp.globaldimension.org.uk. Thanks for listening.